here's a quote, not from the Bible, but from the Tasmanian Code. That's the code of the Presbyterian Church of Tasmania, okay? An elder must be a communicant of a congregation at least 21 years of age, regularly attending its services of worship and contributing to its funds. So far as it is possible, an elder should meet the biblical qualifications for that office. Okay, so we're going to talk about that now tonight and next week. So be prayerfully reading over these passages as well, revisiting the passages during the week. It's a very serious process that we're about to enter into. Okay, so perhaps if you could uh, turn back to Titus, Titus chapter 1. Uh, and in these two talks, uh, you go to any Christian bookshop and there are any number of books. There are shelves and shelves of books on leadership. You, you go to social media and you'll find any number of posts, uh, blogs about you know, five things or ten things that a leader should have, you know, all these things. Uh, I'm not going to deal with it in that way. I'm fed up with that sort of stuff. There's too much of it around. I'm not interested in what the world thinks about leadership. I'm interested in what the Bible says about leaders in churches. And so I will, what I'm going to be saying both tonight and next Sunday is, is in the context of what church is for and what church is about. And so um, we're going to look this, uh, tonight at uh, Titus chapter 1. And uh, we're talk, looking at what Paul says to Titus, who he's left on the island of Crete. Now, uh, just think for a moment about a culture where newspapers can't be trusted and uh, politicians fiddle expenses a harsh, selfish, racist culture where there's a fear of street crime, a, a culture where farm work and building work is done by migrants because local people don't want the jobs, a, a culture where obesity is a massive problem, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> well, that's how it was on the island of Crete, according to verse 12. So how do you reach a culture like that? How do you reach a place like that? How do you turn Cretans into Christians? Well, you plant churches. How do you change an island like Tasmania? You plant churches. That's the vision of Vision 100. That's the vision of our, of our churches that have been planted here in Hobart. We want to see a multiplication of gospel churches in Tasmania. Crete is just a tiny little island on the, in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a fraction the size of Tasmania. And yet according to Homer in his writings, and this might be an exaggeration on the part of Homer, there were a hundred cities, a hundred centers of population on that tiny little island. And Paul's vision for Crete was to see every one of those towns, every one of those centers of population, to Titus. Look at verse 5. This is our text for tonight. See what he says there? The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and to appoint elders in every town. The word elder, by the way, is the word presbyter. That's where we get our denominational name from, Presbyterian. The Anglican Church and, and other churches like the Anglican Church are Episcopal churches. That comes from the word for bishop. What we'll find tonight is that the word presbyter and the word episkopos are used interchangeably. They're the same person in the New Testament. Uh, we'll see that in a moment. But what you notice here, just by way of interest, is that Paul was a Presbyterian. <laughs> he wanted presbyters in every town. See that there? That's, that's, I'm quite serious. 
I, I want, I, the reason I left you there was to set right what was left undone and to appoint presbyters in every place, elders in every town. Uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because what for us is little more than a denominational distinctive for Paul is a missionary strategy, a missional strategy. Elders in every city. Presbyters in every place. Uh, and this is so not only in Crete, but everywhere Paul went around the Mediterranean. That's what he was up to. We call it the Pauline cycle. doesn't mean he went around the Mediterranean on a bike. It, what it meant is that he would go around preaching the gospel, people would be converted, he'd gather them into congregations, and then he would retrace his steps. Sometimes it took 18 months to two years before he got back, but he would go back to those congregations that have been gathered. That's Presbyterianism. That's what we're a part of. In this case, he delegates the job to Titus. The reason I left you there, he says, so that you might appoint elders in every city. Now, I don't want to be cynical <laughs> about this. I've been around a long time. I've been in the Presbyterian Church of Wales, and I've been in the Presbyterian Church of Australia as a minister for nearly 50 years. <laughs> I don't want to be too cynical, but it doesn't sound like a very good idea, does it? <laughs> Uh, so often in the Presbyterian church, it's the elders who hold things up and stop things from happening. Obstructs vision. <laughs> now, we, we don't want elders like that. We've had far too many of them in the past, and I'm talking now about the more far distant past. We've had far too many people like that in leadership. We've, what ought to be our glory, you know, as a Presbyterian church... What ought to be our glory has actually become our shame, historically speaking. Because all too often we put the wrong people in leadership for the wrong reasons. And we must never make that mistake again. Especially when we start new congregations. So this is Paul's missional strategy. Paul's left Titus on the island of Crete to finish what he said is vital to the carrying out of God's mission to the world. So we need to give attention to what Paul says here about leaders because we're about to start that process of looking for new leaders, extra leaders. Now, where do we find them? And what do they look like? How do we recognize them? Where do we find them? Well, they, they don't just sort of turn up. They don't just drop down from heaven. They don't just appear from nowhere. You may wonder what those chocolate chip cookies are doing up there on the screen, but I was at a conference a year or so ago, and hearing a guy called Mez McConnell, who's a church planner in Glasgow, speak about, about raising leaders. And he used this illustration. I think it's a good illustration. He says, you know how to make chocolate chip cookies? You, you, you mix the dough and you put the, the chocolate chips into the dough and you put it into the oven and the dough rises and you end up with a cookie which has chocolate chips that have been raised up. Some are on the surface, some are inside. And they surprise us. The point is, he said, you need the whole dough for leaders to be raised up. In other words, you have to disciple the whole congregation. You can't just scoop up a handful of chocolate chips. The gospel has to do its work in a church. The gospel has to do its work in people's lives. 
That's what Paul is talking about in the opening verses of this chapter. He's describing the environment in which leaders are raised up. He's giving us the context in which leaders emerge. Just look at verse 1. He tells us two things there in, in verse 1. Uh, why are we here? Look what he says in verse 1. Why do we exist as a body of believers in this city? He gives us two reasons. For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Let's just quickly think about those two things, first of all. What are we here for? What is church about? It's for the faith of God's elect. What does that mean? We're here to bring God's elect to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. We're not on a wild goose chase. We're not on a hiding to nothing. God has his elect. God has chosen before the foundation of the world people to be saved. And they won't be saved apart from the preaching of the gospel. That's what churches are for. We are here for the faith of God's elect, so that the elect might come to faith. Now, we don't know who they are. And they don't know who they are. But there are lots of them. You may remember the uh, story of uh, Paul at Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Paul's been laboring away there, not seeing much uh, success, and uh, he's ready to give up and to go home. And God speaks to him during, a, during the night in a dream, and he tells him, Paul, I have many people in this city. And so Paul stays for another 18 months preaching the gospel gathers a congregation. There are many people in this city of Hobart. We don't know who they are. They don't know that they are the elect of God. But the way that they are gathered is by the preaching of the gospel. That's how the elect, that's what we're here for, to bring the elect to faith. For, that's what he says. To bring God's elect to faith. For the faith of God's elect. Someone has said the... Uh, Church is the only society that exists for the benefit of non-members. That's who we are. And that's why Paul left Titus on Crete, because he wants to see Cretans becoming Christians. That's why we plant churches and appoint presbyters in every city, not to fly the denominational flag, but to see people converted. That's evangelism, isn't it? And Crete was not an easy place for evangelism. You look at verse 12. I mean, today, Crete is a much sought-after uh, holiday destination. Uh, everyone wants to, wants to have a holiday on a Greek island, of course, don't they? Who wouldn't want to be a church planter on the island of Crete? <laughs> but look at verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's not what it says in the holiday brochures, is it? <laughs> but that's what they said about themselves. And we are here to turn Cretans into Christians. We are here to turn Australians <laughs> into believers. It's called evangelism. That's what we're here for. We're here for the faith of God's elect, he says in verse 1. And the second thing he says is, for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That's, that's edification. Those are the two things that church is about. Evangelism and edification. New converts need to be discipled. Brand new baby Christians, brand new baby believers need to be taught the truths that lead to godliness. They need to be taught the whole counsel of God's word. 
That's what we're here for, not to stuff people's heads with Bible knowledge so that they become Bible nerds, but to teach sound, healthy doctrine that will actually change people's lives. You heard Miles' testimony tonight about how his life has been changed over a number of years by the Word of God and by the fellowship of God's people here and, and, and elsewhere. Leonard Ravenhill tells uh, about a group of tourists visiting a, a picturesque village in the Balkans. And uh, they come across this uh, toothless old peasant sitting behind a fence. And in a rather patronizing way, one of the tourists asks him, were any, were any great men born in this village? Nope, said the old man. Only babies. <laughs> See, growth takes time. There are no instant leaders. There are no instant heroes. If we're going to evangelize Tasmania and multiply churches here, we will need leaders, and we're going to have to grow our own leaders, and that takes time. Where are you going to find godly leaders in a place like Crete? You preach the gospel to them, and you, you teach the new, the, the, the new converts. You teach them sound doctrine. So they are compulsive liars. What do you do? You teach them the attributes of God. Verse 2, you tell them about the, the God who does not lie. They're evil brutes. <laughs> the answer to every argument in the island of Crete was a punch in the face and a bloody nose. So what do you do? You teach them about the cross. You tell them about the one who shed his blood for them. The one who, when they hurled insults at him, did not retaliate. When he suffered, made no threats. Sound doctrine. They're lazy gluttons, big, fat, greedy slobs feeding their faces. That's what they say about themselves, pampering themselves, living selfishly. So you teach them the doctrine of the Trinity. You, you talk to them about the face-to-faceness of the Trinity. The Father face-to-face with the Son, and the Son face-to-face with the Father. The, uh, the, you tell them about the that God is other person-centered. You tell them that God is love. You teach them sound doctrine. And they might well say, well, that's, you can't change us. This is our culture. This is the way we are. <laughs> you can't change us. But, no, that's true. You can't, we can't change people. But the gospel can. You see, We need to have confidence that the gospel can do this. These truths, see what it says, lead to godliness. And, and that's where we're going to get our leaders from. That's the way to mix the dough from which leaders emerge. If the job is to be done, if the work is to be completed, we're to raise up leaders by evangelism and edification. And that takes time. That's why Paul waited 18 months to two years before appointing elders in the churches that he planted, to give the dough time to rise. That's the context. Okay, well, Soul Church has been around for 10 years now. Plenty of time for the dough to rise. So how do you recognize a leader? What are we looking for? Let's see what it says. Uh, uh, verse 6, an elder, and the word there is presbyter, must be blameless. Verse 6. And then in the next verse, verse 7, an overseer, episkopos, bishop, must be New Testament. Elder and bishop. Presbyter and episkopos the same person. Os Guinness, in his book, Dining with the Devil, quotes a Japanese businessman. He says, this Japanese businessman said, whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. <laughs> That's very telling, isn't it? 
Now, don't misunderstand me. Christian leaders are managers. That's what these two words mean. That's why Paul uses these two different words to describe the kind of leaders that we're to look for. Presbyters are bishops in the New Testament. Bishops are presbyters. Elders are overseers. One of the functions, you see, of, the effective, of effective leadership, someone has said, a leader does the right thing and a manager does the thing right. Well, we need both. We need people who will know to do the right thing and we need people who will also know how to do that thing right. And that's what these two words are talking about. But you see, the emphasis here is, is on character. Whether you, whatever you call them, whether you call them bishop or presbyter, whether you call it elder or you know, presbyter or episcopos, whatever, you, whatever title you give them or, or name you call them, yeah, we're told that uh, an elder, an overseer must be blameless. Literally unim unimpeachable. Not perfect, of course, not sinless, but blameless. Not in a legalistic, pharisaical kind of way, like Saul of Tarsus. Remember before he met Christ, do you remember what he says in Philippians chapter 3, giving his testimony, he says, as far as the, the law was concerned, I was blameless. As for righteousness, he says, based on the law, I was faultless. But that kind of legalistic righteousness is like painting by numbers. You ever done that with your kids or did you ever do that when you were a kid painting by numbers you know you have an outline of some great work of art and then you, you paint between the lines according to the numbers so there's a law code for you to follow there's a key to tell you what color to choose and the end product of course is wooden and lifeless and artificial isn't it totally lacking in in any kind of flair or creativity you're very unlikely to hang such a painting on your wall unless it's done by one of your grandchildren that's pharisaical, legalist, clinical, and correct. Mark Twain describes such people as good in the worst sense of the word, like stainless steel, clean but cold, correct but sterile. Now, blameless doesn't mean that. Reading between the lines in verses 10 and 11, there were such people around in Crete. Paul labels them as those belonging to the circumcision group. There was a faction there. That kind of leadership, this kind of pharisaical righteousness, ruins whole households, he says. Christ plus destroys churches, wherever the plus happens to be. It, legalistic righteousness forms factions, it divides and it destroys churches. It ruins whole households, he says. But blameless, the blamelessness we're to look for is not that kind of blamelessness. It's gospel holiness. It's warm and attractive, bubbling up from inside, rising out of your relationship with Jesus and the forgiveness of your sins. Now that's what we're looking for. But where do we look? We almost finished this talk, but there are three areas, you notice, that are mentioned here. If you're looking for leaders, we're told where to look. Three things. In verse 6, we're told to look into the home. In verses 7 and 8, we're told to look into the heart. And in verse 9, we're told to look into the head. So we're looking for leaders. Where do we look? They're to be blameless in the sense that I've just described for you. And how do we know that they're like that? Where do we look? 
But we look into the home. Look at verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, our culture thinks that um, the private lives of our leaders are no one's business as long as they, they do their job. Isn't that right? Yeah, just the other debate recently over the change of premier in New South Wales, you know. Our culture thinks, well, okay, it doesn't really matter what happens behind closed doors. The private lives of our leaders is no one's business as long as they do their job. Paul says, if you want to know what kind of a leader a man might be in the church, look into his home. Look through the keyhole. Speak to his wife. Talk to his kids. Look at his private life. Look at the way he treats his wife. Is he a, a one-man, a one-woman man? Or has he got wandering eyes? Is he, is he leading at home? Is he nurtured? Are they growing up to be followers of Jesus? If it's not happening there, then what makes you think it's going to happen in the extended family, the church? If he's domineering in the home, he will be domineering in the church. That's why you've got to look into the home. If he can't manage his own household, what makes you think he can manage God's household? The church. So, so look into the home. And, and look into the heart. Verses 7 and 8. There's a whole list of virtues and vices there, isn't there? It's not a checklist. These are symptoms. They help you understand what's in a person's heart. Is he arrogant, proud, angry, violent, overbearing, greedy? Or is he gospel-hearted? Is he hospitable, one who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined? See, hospitable means, literally it means welcoming to outsiders and strangers, to non-Christians. That's what hospitable means. It means welcoming to strangers. Those are the sort of men we need to lead our churches. Not yes men, but men with yes faces. Chuck Swindle, uh, in his book Grace Awakening, tells the story about Thomas Jefferson. You may have heard this story before. Uh, the one-time American president. Uh, he and his men had to cross a swollen river on horseback. And a stranger asked the president if he would ferry him across. The president agreed without hesitating. After they made it across safely to the other side... One of the president's men asked the stranger, why did you ask the president to carry you across? Shocked, the man said, I didn't know he was the president. All I knew was that on some of your faces was written the answer, no. And on some of you, the answer, yes. He had a yes face. He had a yes face. Isn't that the kind of leader to look for? Isn't that what hospitable means? J.C. Ryle, in his book, uh, Five Christian Leaders, gives the, the testimony of a wealthy woman in New York who was converted through Whitfield's preaching. No one who ever saw him, says Ryle, could ever doubt that he enjoyed his religion. Mr. Whit Whitfield, she said, was so cheerful that it tempted me to become a Christian. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? He was so cheerful. He had such a yes face. Those are the kind of leaders we want. That's what hospitable means. Not yes men, but men with yes faces. So look into the home, not in a nosy, kind of interfering sort of way, but prayerfully. 
look, that, that's another thing about hospitality. See, but if somebody is hospitable, then you've probably already been invited into their home, and so you can see for yourself what's happening there. You can see the transparency. He's not someone different there than he is here. See? So look into the home and look into the heart, and then finally look into the head. Someone has said, a leader is a person with a magnet in his heart and a compass in his head. I like that. I like the balance of that. A magnet in his heart, drawing people. But with a compass in his head. It, and so you ask the question, is he a safe guide? Does he hold, that's what verse 9 asks us, does he hold firmly to the trustworthy message? Does he have well-formed convictions? Not just opinions. You can change your opinions like you change your socks. But does he have convictions? Does he know what he believes and why he believes it? Look, look at verse 9. Holding firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. This is the apostolic succession. It is the form of sound words that has been handed down to us. It is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints that has now come to us. That's the, the trustworthy message holding firmly to the trustworthy message, as it has been taught, so that he will be able both to encourage others with sound teaching and refute those who oppose it. John Calvin said, a pastor needs two voices, one to gather the sheep and one to drive away the wolves. Now we need leaders like that. Men who have grasped the gospel for themselves, and who are able to guard the gospel from false teachers, and who know how to give the gospel away. That's the task that Paul gives to Titus, to find leaders like that. Men with the gospel in their heads, and in their hearts, and in their homes.